Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to this London Review of Books podcast, part of a series about 20th century British American poets and their poems. My name is Seamus Perry. I teach English at the University of Oxford. And I'm speaking with Mark Ford, who is uh, both a professor of English at University College London and also a poet. Our subject today is the British poet Stevie Smith, who has a perhaps eccentric but uh, tenacious reputation. And we're going to be exploring both the tenacity of that reputation and also perhaps that eccentricity. And we thought that one way of beginning would be by considering her most famous single poem, not waving, but drowning. Nobody heard him, the dead man, but still he lay moaning. I was much further out than you thought, and not waving, but drowning. Poor chap, he always loved larking, and now he's dead. It must have been too cold for him. His heart gave way, they said. Oh, no, 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 it was too cold always. Still the dead one lay moaning. I was much too far out all my life, and not waving, but drowning. So, Mark, a poem that no one else but Stevie Smith could conceivably have written, what makes it so Smithian, do you think? I think some of the words, larking, is a particularly striking word. Poor chap, he always loved larking. Uh, it's got a kind of uh, demotic to it. It's an ordinary word, and it, it evokes a sense of fun, which is, in the circumstances, um, gruesome and poignant. It was actually based on a um, newspaper story that she came across of um, someone who was not waving but drowning. Um, then there was also a colleague of hers um, in the office where she worked who who... who Something similar had happened to him, but he survived, fortunately. Um, but I think the rhymes are particularly striking. That Smith is a is a great rhymester, and her rhymes are ones which always evoke, um, I suppose, the shadow of doggerel. And the power of her poetry is when the shadow of doggerel is evoked, but somehow transcended or transformed in some way to create something that's genuinely powerful, disturbing, unsettling. And in this case, it seems to me quite um, the idea of the poem is that this image becomes a kind of universalizing metaphor for how we all experience life, that instead of feeling in control of things uh, or, or somehow uh, signaling our joy of things, actually beneath those signals of joy or happiness is a sense of despair. And that desperation underlies, I think, all her best poetry. And this is a good instance of her finding an image for it, which completely encapsulates it. And once you've read this poem, you'll never forget it. That's right. And, and I'm sure part of the effect of that is that is that off rhyme, moaning and drowning that she repeats. Uh, uh, as you say, she's a fantastic rhymester, but she's, she's perhaps an even more brilliant off rhymester or bad rhymester on purpose, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and the repetitions are great, aren't they? Uh, that it comes back, uh, that there's no escape from this particular scenario, the moaning, drowning, 
which is in two and four of stanza one, is again in two and four of stanza three. And that they said has its own single line. Well, the line before goes on for a long time. It must have been too cold for him. His heart gave way with no punctuation, which is again kind of characteristic of the way that she takes licenses that other poets uh, don't allow themselves in terms of leaving out punctuation and so on. And often it, it does, I think, quite deliberately in her work. Aim at, it was called Fousse Naive by Philip Larkin, but at a kind of, uh, the kind of poem that a, a schoolchild might write. Um, and that's a deliberate effect on her part. So the sophistication is involved, is a complex one, and perhaps not that different from some of the things we talked about in relation to Elizabeth Bishop, who also has a, a makes use of faux naive personas and voices um, or perspectives. But Smith makes use of them fairly relentlessly throughout her oeuvre. And just before we move on uh, to look at one of her earlier poems, it's also worth pausing, I suppose, to, to, to say something about the tone of the poem, because one of the things that makes Smith's work so striking is it's often tonally very difficult to pin down, isn't it? As, as you say, this is a, this is a, a, a poem that in some ways uh, does things which, which in a different context would be funny, uh, like trying to rhyme mo- moaning with drowning, for example. And yet the, the, the comedy of it, the, the sort of the, the, the farcical elements of, of the poem are clearly braced against an intensely sort of tragic vision that is the subject of the poem. I think so. And I think it, it's even more complex to work out how to respond when you hear her read it. She became a very famous performer of her poems in the 60s. And this was her kind of piece de resistance uh, for many of her shows. And she would read it in a haunting, wailing voice. And to an extent, she was presenting herself as not quite the mad woman in the attic, but as someone who was deliberately performing an eccentric and that the distinctiveness of the performance that she wasn't um was part of the the difficulty of pinning down what she was doing was she a crazy person or was she writing poems underpinned by a great deal of reading a great deal of thought and expressing a coherent and persuasive vision of life yes she resisted the label eccentric didn't she but i think the resistance to the label was itself part of the eccentric uh, persona that was all wrapped up in the idea of stevie well, yes. I mean, interesting. She got her name. Do you know how she got her name? Um, no. She uh, uh, was born Florence Margaret, but she was called Stevie after a jockey. And her hairstyle resembled that of a, a, a jockey called um, uh, Steve Donahue in the 20s. And the name stuck. But uh, the fact that she, she had a name that was, well, you might say, trans and that S- Stevie Smith was in some ways um, not a didn't wasn't a typical woman of her period to put it no more strongly than that, and it's not clear what nature her sexuality was, uh, that she did occupy this rather sort of in-between or amorphous space uh, between the two polarities of gender. And that may relate to her upbringing. The next poem we were going to look at was the Papa Love Baby, which talks about the fact that her father left when she was three and went to sea. Uh, She was born in Hull in... um, 1902 uh, and when she was three her father who had owned um, a kind of coal business uh, went bankrupt and he ran away to sea and Stevie was left with her older sister who was two years older uh, Molly and her mother and the aunt and the aunt um, who was called Ethel Spear I uh, know the mother was called Ethel Spear uh, the, ma- the aunt was called Madge Spear they were the kind of dominant figures in Stevie Smith's life so she grew up in an all-female household and in this 
poem, Papa Love Baby, she kind of ponders uh, how it is, uh, what role she herself may have played in her father's sudden disappearance. Though he did return later, periodically, but she never really established a relationship with him. Papa Love Baby. My mother was a romantic girl, so she had to marry a man with his hair in curl, who subsequently became my unrespected papa, but that was a long time ago now. What folly it is that daughters are always supposed to be in love with papa. It wasn't the case with me. I couldn't take to him at all, but he took to me. What a sad fate to befall a child of three. I sat upright in my baby carriage and wished mamma hadn't made such a foolish marriage. I tried to hide it, but it showed in my eyes, unfortunately. And a fortnight later, papa ran away to sea. He used to come home on leave. It was always the same. I could not grieve. But I think I was somewhat to blame. That's a wonderfully sort of throwaway moral conclusion at the end, isn't it? Especially with the word somewhat. Um, this is, it's almost the opposite of a poem that Sylvia Plath would write in a way. Well, but Sylvia Plath was a huge admirer and wrote to Stevie Smith saying that, you know, she was one of her favourite poets. And I'm not sure this isn't in the, in the background of Daddy, that the, the use of the, of the nursery rhyme style uh, rhymes and the um, rhythms and, and that there's also it's dealing with uh, father issues, uh, you could say. Yes, and the, the the lovely way in which the, the child is given a, a sort of judicious and, and reasoning voice. Um, it wasn't the case with me. I couldn't take to him at all. Um, wonderful refusal to subscribe to any Freudian account of, of what the family is like. But I'm not quite sure what she means, but he took to me. Uh, that sounds a little bit on the edge, put it no more than that. Um, so the, this this meant that the the Smith family was effectively abandoned by the breadwinner and it's not quite clear why but they moved from Hull when she was three down to London and they settled in Palmer's Green famously and in fact I went up to Palmer's Green yesterday I had a look at one Avondale Road where uh, Smith lived for entire life from uh, 1906 to uh, 1971 and she was very much associated with with Palmer's Green have you been there? I haven't, no, but, but since you've done this piece of, uh, of uh, field work for the London Review of Books, perhaps you could characterise the, uh, the neighbourhood. Well, when she moved there, it would have been quite rural. I mean, it's really quite a long way in North London. I mean, I, I got on the 141 from Stoke Newington and it was a good 40, 45 minutes before I got to Palmer's Green. And even then I had to walk quite a way to get to Avondale Road. Uh, and when they moved there, it would have been right on the outskirts and in the country. It's now part of a London suburb. And in her life... She thought of it as a suburb and she writes poems about the suburbs. She's actually a great poet of the London suburbs. And, and there are some of them, but not that many of them. But a poem of hers called Suburb I particularly like and included in my um, anthology of the poetry of London because unlike most poets, she does uh, approach the suburb and she has great affection for the suburbs. There's actually a, a quite late poem called Avondale when she kind of riffs on, on this, what is a suburban Victorian street of, of no great distinction or interest. Uh, how sweet the birds of Avondale, of Avondale, of Avondale. How sweet the birds of Avondale do swoop and swing and call and so on. And you never quite know whether she's mocking um, suburbia or actually relishing the pleasures of suburbia. 
suburbia. It's kind of Rus in Urbe. So this is like a serial comic voice, which is a little bit like Betjeman's, perhaps. In some I ways, think so. It? I think I think that's a really interesting analogy, and that they're both interestingly both of them found a public, um, a, a general public, which not that many poets uh, of the twentieth century have managed to do. Um, people who bought their books and went to see them read and were bought their books as other people buy novels, bought books of poetry as other people buy novels. So uh, to, 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 to that extent, it's certainly both Smith and Betjeman seem to have found the sweet spot of the English poetry-loving uh, public. Thanks for listening to this extract from Series 1 of Modernish Poets. To listen to the full series and to all our other Close Reading series, sign up at lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link below. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.